reading of Scripture, which you'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 5. This morning, verses 1 through 6, as we continue on in the exposition of Mark's Gospel, straight talk about Jesus Christ. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Now, what would you think if I described to you a scene of a wild man, unclothed, violently agitated, covered in scars and cuts, rushing out of a graveyard toward you, dragging chains and shackles, his unearthly howls and screams growing louder and louder with his grotesque approach. Well, if we hadn't read the scripture, you'd probably think I was describing a horror movie to you. But I want you to know that this horrible scene is real in the life of Jesus. And I expect the disciples, and if I had been with them, I'd have probably been looking to jump back in the boat rather than face this horrid creature rushing with such violence and haunting sounds toward toward us. But Mark chapter 5 symbolizes and reveals Jesus' authority and power between the natural world and the supernatural world. As we come to chapter 5, as the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord over the living and the dead, even between worlds, this world and the other world. And I don't want you to miss that as we look into this scripture. Now, in verses 1 through 20, we have the first of the three stories in chapter 5. And we won't be able to cover all of uh, uh, verses 1 through 20 this morning. But here in verses 1 through 20, we have the story of the gathering man possessed with a legion of demons. But I also want you to see that as Jesus passes over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he left the western shore and passed over to the eastern shore, to this land. So he divinely transcends the natural world and the supernatural world with his presence and power over the living and the dead. Uh, These are the things that I don't want you to miss as we read about this. Yes, geographically, Jesus went from one side of the sea to the other. But there's more going on here. The Sea of Galilee represents or symbolizes a translucent curtain or portal between worlds as Jesus passed over to the other side and back again. And we have that description of him. It's a mystery, but we have that description of him given to us in Scripture. We're just given inklings of it. But that as the Son of God and the Son of Man uniquely in the incarnation, so Jesus possesses the divine transcendence. Remember we said even though he laid aside the prerogatives of his deity, he never ceased being divine. The eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God. And this is manifest and given to us at at times in his earthly ministry. Look at verse 1. Then they came to the other side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes. We don't know exactly where that was, somewhere on the eastern shore, but it was in the region of Decapolis of the Ten Cities, as we uh, later read and find out. 
But what's the first thing that happens when Jesus arrives on the other side, the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the natural world? The first thing he encounters is the evil presence of a legion of demons from the supernatural world. As we go on to look at verses 2 through 6, this this place on the eastern shore of tombs in the caves and cliffs was in the region of Decapolis, the League of Ten Cities. Most likely it was a mix of both Jewish and Gentile settlers. And there was a man with an unclean spirit. Look at verse 2. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now this means that there was a corruption in every way, in body, soul, and spirit. And this was a frightful demonstration of total depravity, influenced and controlled by demonic powers. But, but I want you to understand here that the guilt of original and actual sin is not the same as demon possession. This man was a sinner. And we're not told as to what extent or why, but he was driven from his family and from his home. And he was possessed of this legion of demons. But the first thing we need to understand that he was by uh, original sin and by actual sins, he was a sinner. That's not the same thing as being demon possessed. And thankfully, as we learn from this story and elsewhere in Scripture, demon possession and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God are mutually exclusive. We do need to learn some lessons about the question of demon possession, the reality and existence of demons and the, the rebellion against God. But we need to limit ourselves to Scripture and what Scripture says about these things. Now we're told here immediately this man met Jesus out of the tombs. Now this uh, I think is important and I know it's easy to overlook but the humanity of this lost soul is primary in the story. I don't know if you've thought of that before but I don't want you to miss it. The humanity of this man as a lost soul is primary in the story, even though it's easy to overlook it because of the details and our preoccupation and our interest in the demonic supernatural. One of the things also I think is important to to note here, and I I want us all to pay attention to this because we're so inundated with it in terms of popular entertainment. Have you noticed there's such a preoccupation with the dehumanizing, with the graveyard, with the death culture? that there are uh, displayed to us in movies and in television shows and in video games, a dehumanizing uh, of, of humanoid or humanistic type creatures that are turned into zombies, you know, the, the walking dead or whatever. You, you know that they represent to us humans, but then they're dehumanized. And so blowing them up with the most advanced and... and um, uh, I don't know, type of weaponry that you can, you, you can click on your arsenal in the video game. The one that blows them up the most. But then you've got to blow them up in a certain way because, you know, they'll just keep gumming at you with all their entrails hanging out and all this stuff. Uh, you, you've seen how that's just progressed more and more to be dehumanized and desensitized when they really do represent a human form. Now, I'm not railing here moralistically about, you know, playing video games or watching the zombie things or whatever. But I do want you to look beyond that. I want you to be wise. I want you to consider that we not be desensitized to human suffering and to real humanity. And what Jesus saw, though you and I may see this horrid creature, demon-possessed, described to us in such a frightful way, Jesus saw a lost soul. We mustn't lose that in this story. So immediately, when he, when he came to the other shore in the boat and they, they hit shore, immediately we're told, there he met Jesus 
a man who was living in the tombs. So the humanity of this man is primary in the story and Jesus dealing with it. And he had been, he had been dwelling among the tombs in verses three through five, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no, no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. The description that's given to us here is of a progressive and worsening condition. Degenerating inwardly and outwardly. Having fits of screaming and cutting his body. Uh, It seems that he would go into a writhing fit, screaming at different times. And at times he would cut himself. He's covered with scars and even opened wounds. It's interesting that Matthew's gospel adds that this was affecting others as well. We're told that in Matthew's gospel there were two demon-possessed men there. And that the frightened folks of the area avoided going that way as they had tried to contain them. But even chains and shackles, they couldn't be held. Um, Some, of course, have tried to say there's a contradiction in accounts here. Uh, This is how I understand it. That both Mark and Luke focus on the primary that this man would possess with a legion of demons became the primary influence. No doubt he was attracting and drawing other demon possessed to him. I think if Jesus hadn't interrupted and, and stopped this, the whole gang of demon-possessed could have begun to, to gather there. Now, that's how I see it. I don't see any kind of contradiction here at all. I see Jesus coming to save and to stop and to, to do powerfully that which we can't do and that which we could not know if it wasn't revealed to us. That he has power not only in this wor- world, but in the other world. He has power over the supernatural as well. That's essential. And there are many attempts to try to uh, explain away, or we'll even hear next time when we come into this passage about uh, psychological conditions or whatever. This man didn't have a psychological condition. This man was possessed of demons. Now, I can't explain more to you than that, other than that Jesus has transcendent power in this world and the other world, in this natural world and the supernatural world. And that's what the scriptures are revealing and telling us about. So this deranged man was driven from his home and friends. We're told in verse 19, when Jesus restores him, he returns back to his home and friends. We don't want to lose that either. But for now, he's isolated. He's separated from them. He's living out in the caves and in the tombs, among the dead bones and burial uh, area. Squatting there in this wretched condition. It's a reminder of the veil of consciousness between the living and the dead, between this life and the afterlife, between this world and the other world. I think it is real and symbolic that he's living among the tombs of those who are buried. Why would he be driven there? There's a veil of consciousness. I don't know if it is in the demonic control that that he is among the dead, that it's a, a, a symbolism of that death, of the reality of that death. Or if in his humanity he's trying to hold on to the only connection to humanity he can. The living will have nothing to do with him. So he's driven out to the dead, but still wanting that connection with humanity. Jesus sees through all this to see the humanity of this lost soul. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. This is another puzzling uh, statement here in verse 6. I can't explain to you the the superhuman power of this demon-possessed man that he could break chains and rip off shackles. 
that he could, you know, cut himself and not die from infection living in among the the burial ground there. I can't explain all of that to you. I know there there are more questions that we have answers for. But what we look to is what scripture tells us in terms of the power of Christ over these things. And so we're told in verse 6 that from afar, when Jesus landed on the shore, evidently in the caves and cliffs and the burial ground was some distance from where Jesus landed on the shore. We're not told how far away it was, but that immediately he ran and worshipped Jesus. And this is a real puzzle to us. In the text, we're not only impressed with the urgency. Immediately this happened in this scene but also with Jesus' divinely transcendent power indicating his compelling subjugation, even from a distance of this man and the demons. You see, this is what I think. I think if the demons were in control, they'd have been running the other way. But even from a distance, when Jesus lands on the shore, he knows what's going on. And this man is subjugated and compelled and drawn to Jesus. I believe Jesus supernaturally compels subjugation of these demons and the man comes running to him to worship him. And that's why we started out with that scene that sounds like a horror movie. And what I expect, the disciples didn't know what was about to happen. Remember they had just come across the sea and they'd been caught in a storm and they thought they were going to die. And with Jesus, with the power of the Creator, stilled the wind and the sea, and they came on over to the eastern side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They just came off of that event, and now they land. And immediately when they land, this banshee comes running out of the tombs, and, you know, with some kind of, of more than human presence. And I think the disciples were... And wonder what's going to happen. I don't think they were happy about saying, "Oh, let's," you know, like we're sitting at the at the movie theater. Oh, pass the popcorn. Let's see what happens. I think they were terror stricken. I mean, I would have been. I don't like horror movies anyway, so I I know I, w- I would have been terror stricken with this scene. And I know that there are more questions than we have answers for when we come here. But I don't want us to miss the obvious, and that is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ transcending the natural and the supernatural world and his authoritative power over these demons and this lost man. And so, while both the human and the demonic are tangled up in this man, Jesus is able and intent on saving the man and destroying the demons. Do you get that? Does that come out to you? Why did this man, demon-possessed man, come running at Jesus from afar and worship him? Don't don't, listen. A lot of commentators try to to underplay this and say that uh, this was begrudging on the demons' part, that the the demons were just forced into this, you know, falling at Jesus' feet. And we have other passages in Mark repeatedly told that when Jesus came in the presence of these demon-possessed people, they fell at his feet and shrieked and cried out. I want you to understand that's because Jesus has a subjugating power over the demons of the other world. I don't think they come voluntarily. Jesus subjugates them. He is the Lord. There is no power in heaven or earth, above the heavens or below the earth. There is no power greater than the power of the Lord Jesus over the worlds of His creation. He created 
the spirit beings. And though they rebelled and war against him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Things on earth and things under the earth. When we meet these um, examples and these stories in Scripture telling us that the demon-possessed fall at Jesus' feet and cry out and say, You are the Son of God. Sometimes Jesus hushes them. We've talked about that previously in the book of Mark. But here I want you to understand that from afar, this demon-possessed man is compelled. He is drawn. Jesus doesn't let the demons have control. He subjugates them and the man falls at Jesus' feet and worships him. And I take that as sincere and genuine because Jesus is saving this lost soul and he's destroying those demons. And we'll, we'll hear more about that as the uh, story goes on. So, by falling at Jesus' feet and confessing him to be God, uh, we have seen this already. Uh, demons repeatedly uh, recognizing and confessing him uh, in Mark's narrative. And we shouldn't lose that. But what does this story do? We, we talked about the fact that, that this story... Uh, is similar to other stories that we've had in the first four chapters, particularly of Jesus healing or Jesus casting out demons of the demon-possessed, acknowledging and, and being subjected under the power of the Lord Jesus. So this story magnifies and personalizes the meaning for all of those whom Jesus delivered from being demon-possessed and saved their souls as witness of the gospel. That's what, what Mark started out with. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. He came preaching the kingdom of God. He's the king and the demons obey him. They are subject to him. He banishes them and he saves souls who were demon possessed. That's what we don't want to lose. That's what we want to see. And that's what I want you to recognize uh, in this story. And, and the fact that there's a, a legion of demons. We're going to look at that as we go on in the scripture and, and talk a little bit about it. But what it does is it magnifies for us who the Lord Jesus is and what he's doing. And even though we don't know the name of this man, as we go on through the story, we see how Jesus saves him and restores him and banishes the demons and returns him as a witness in that land of who Jesus is and his gospel to save. Even though we don't know the name of this man, he represents to us all of those personally whom Jesus delivered from demon possession, saved their souls, disentangled the, human, the humanity from the demon possessed and brought them into his kingdom, adopting them as one of his dear children, one of his brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. Jesus saves the souls of the lost. And that's the thing that I really want to emphasize when we come to the encounter with the supernatural like this. We must be careful that we, we don't miss the point of the gospel, even though we were saved not being demon-possessed, but we were saved out of, out of original and actual sin's guilt, dead in our trespasses and sins, alive in our rebellion against God. We too walked in the ways of the flesh before we were converted. Even if you were saved as a child, you still had to have your sins forgiven. And so this is the point that's being made. Salvation is supernatural. It's a supernatural act of God. Jesus, the uncreated second person of the Holy Trinity, fulfilling the mission that His Father gave Him in saving the lost. You were lost. I was lost. We could not save ourselves. Salvation is a supernatural act of God in regeneration. It's not home improvement. Not self-improvement. 
And we need to hear that message and we need to hold on to that message and we need to pray for that message because we are in a lost world. A lost world that can only be saved by Jesus Christ. So the point that should not be missed is that Jesus' saving power reaches lost souls from afar. Jesus' saving power reaches those even considered humanly beyond reach. You have some that you're praying for. Is there someone heavy on your heart? Perhaps in family, extended family, friends or acquaintances from work, from school, from whatever uh, connection you have. Someone that seems to be unreachable. Even we as Christians sometimes come to the point where we just think we're going to give up. And I'm telling you, as long as they're breathing, you keep praying. Because Jesus reaches those that are humanly unreachable. Again, that's what I want to press upon you. Please hear me and please don't be confused with, with what's going on broadly in even evangelical Christianity in America that, that somehow Christianity is self-improvement, is doing better. How you can do better, how you can be better, how you can have more. That's not the gospel. Do we remember, do we consider that we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sins? That we were beyond hope. We were beyond reach. The people who loved us could not save us. The people whom we love, we cannot save. Only Jesus can save them. But don't give up praying and hoping. Don't give up hope on the gospel. Because Jesus reaches those beyond human reach. Even between the natural world and the supernatural world. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2? And you he made alive who were what? Dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. That was you and me. Paul doesn't set this apart into a special class like this demon-possessed man. He said, no, all of us were dead in trespasses and sins. And in that condition, we walked according to this world. We were not demon-possessed, but we were going right along with it. Until the power of the Son of God broke in and a supernatural ability to disentangle and to remove us from the death and the guilt of our trespasses and sins. And what did Jesus do? He saved us. He changed us. It's a supernatural act, regeneration is, being born again. It is not of human ability. It is of the Spirit of God. And so always remember that biblical salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ, the anointed Savior. Remember, that's what the name and title mean. Jesus means Savior. Uh, Christ means anointed one, Messiah. He is our anointed Savior. And it is a supernatural transformation in this natural world. See, Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee in the natural world. It was a natural lake or, or big uh, in, inland sea. He went across it in a boat. It was, it was natural. There was a storm that blew up and could have uh, drowned them like storms happen. But Jesus was able to still the waters and quiet the winds. They went on over across in the natural world to the eastern shore. But there he was met with a man 
that was possessed with unnatural beings and power. What happened to you and me in this natural world? We were born into this natural world. We weren't born without God's knowledge and wisdom and purpose and intent and control. But we were born in this natural world and we were born into a natural state of sin. From original sin and actual sin's guilt. You see, we didn't become a sinner when we first sinned. We were born with a sin nature inherited from our original parents. Not just our birth parents, but going all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's not a myth. Adam and Eve were the first created beings that God made as the scriptures tell us. If you don't believe that, then everything about salvation falls apart. Because we are inheritors of original sin. We are born separated from God in trespasses and guilt and death that carried on from the first covenant. That's what the scriptures tell us. We can't save ourselves. That salvation is a supernatural act of God breaking into the natural world. You see, Jesus broke into my natural world. From the supernatural world. And that's what salvation is. A supernatural act of saving that comes from God. And see, that's what I'm trying to encourage us about this morning. As we're praying and as we desire the kingdom of God. That Jesus came preaching repentance and the kingdom of God is at hand. And while we pray and ask that the Lord would build his kingdom and extend his kingdom. And that he would use this local church congregation for that. It must be by the power and the supernatural presence and work that only comes from the witness of the gospel. The good news. What is that good news? Not that you can have a better life. Not that you can fix yourself. Not that you can find some secret code that will make you rich and famous and wealthy. And then you'll really serve God. God doesn't need that. We must bear witness to the one and only way of salvation. That is through faith in Jesus Christ. When he breaks into this natural world with supernatural power to change us from the inside out. To change sinners from the inside out. To change enemies into friends. To change the dead into the living. And that's what we see with this man whom he saves on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now, even compulsory testimony of vile demons to Jesus' transcendent godness is separated and purified in the souls of those he rescues and saves so that Jesus supernaturally sees through and beyond this world and the other world. This is where I want to point out that when this man came and worshipped Jesus, I believe that worship was genuine. I believe Jesus had subjugated this man, a lost sinner, and Jesus was already disentangling and separating the presence of the demons from this man. He fell at Jesus' feet. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, rulers or powers, demonic forces, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This legion of demons could not separate or could not stop the compelling power of Jesus to bring this man to his feet. Now, I'm not trying to prime the pump here, but if I was a shouting person, I'd say hallelujah. Even the power of demons cannot stop Jesus compellingly bringing us to his feet to worship him. 
and saving our lost souls. <laughs> I wanted to say saving our lost sorry souls. <laughs> and so that's, that's the kind of thing I want you to see in this story. How powerful and how compelling it is. How amazing, how astounding, how awesome. That by Jesus' divine transcendence, He permeates the worlds of His creation. Natural and supernatural. Human and superhuman. We're going to see more about that permeation in His in his eminence. It's not just that he's transcendent. He has a power that goes between and beyond and is not limited to this world or the supernatural world. He's not bound that way. But also, as we'll see as we go on, his eminence is here. He is with us. And he never leaves us. And he never forsakes us. And he never forgets us. And we're never lost in the crowd. And we're never going to truly die. Aren't those... Amazing things to think about. So the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, What is the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe? See, it's a greater power than anything in this world. It's a greater power than the other world. What is the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ Jesus when He raised Him from the dead. The superlatives here are building up on one another. The exceeding greatness of God's power and the working of His mighty power. Demonstrated in what? When He raised Jesus from the dead. A supernatural act of power over death. That's the power that was working in Jesus saving this man. Compelling Him. Drawing Him to Himself to fall at His feet. And disassociated and separating and having power over the demons that possessed Him. What is greater than that is the power of resurrection. When God raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Beloved, that's the other world. But from that other world of honor and glory and majesty and power, Jesus is present in this world. Though He is above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, it's not only in this age, but in the age to come. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in all dominion and power. There Jesus rules until He subdues all His and our enemies. That's what Jesus is about. And what Jesus did on earth and what the record shows and is kept for us, He does in greater magnitude from heaven. That's why we worship Him. That's why we fall down before Him. That's why we lift up our voices and praise Him. That's why we turn our faces in prayer and beg Him. Because Jesus is a transcendent power. And the mediator between this world and the other world. And He is our Savior. And so I want you to find encouragement and excitement and uh, renewed hope as we have this story of Jesus saving this lost soul and banishing these demons. There's more to come as we look in the balance of this Scripture and then, of course, as we go on to the other stories in chapter 5. But I hope that your heart has been stirred to truly um, consider worshiping the Lord Jesus, bowing at His feet, acknowledging that the power of God in raising Him is the assurance of our soul's hope in this world and the other world. And Jesus left us a reminder of that. That's why we observe this Lord's Supper. It's more than a memorial. We're not visiting the graveyard here. We're not coming like we go to uh, the graveyard and, and see the uh, gravestones of our relatives 
those recent or those from many ages or generations ago, this Lord's Supper is not a visit to the garden, to the tomb. 